Uh, good morning. You can tell when it's going to be a rotten day when you put both contact lenses in the same eye. <laughs> you can tell it's going to be a bad day when your income tax check bounces. Or when you're, you call your answering service and they tell you it's none of your business. You can tell it's going to be a bad day when you wake up and your braces are locked together. You can tell it's going to be a bad day when your boss tells you not to bother to take off your coat. You can tell it's going to be a bad day when your twin sister forgets your birthday. You can tell it's going to be a bad day when your birthday cake collapses from the weight of the candles. And you can tell it's going to be a bad day when your car horn goes off accidentally and remains stuck as you follow a group of Hell's Angels on the freeway. <laughs> well, that's a bad day, but I want to talk to you about something a little more extensive than that. Perhaps one of the greatest perplexities in the Christian life is trying to get our minds wrapped around really serious hardships and our great and powerful loving God. Why does he allow hardships to come into our lives if he loves us so much? Yet as we ponder the pages of the scriptures, we discover all kinds of, of different serious hardships that that God has allowed to happen to his people and we are no different. Now the um, perplexity of the, what we call theodicy which is the relationship between God and evil is complex and we're not going to take the time to to dig that out this morning. But we do find in the scriptures that God employs evil and wickedness purposefully in our lives. Now some things we bring on ourselves but there are other things that just happen to us that are totally outside of our control. So why does God let these things happen? Would you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1? We're going to continue on in our discovery of joy happening, how joy happens. One of the things that the Apostle Paul, who was clearly very loved by God, reveals in his life to all of us is the, the subject of hardship. He regularly was engrossed in something very difficult in his life. And, and was there anyone more loved than the Apostle Paul by the Lord himself? Well, maybe John. But after John, Paul surely had to be high in his list of one he loves, yet Paul went through many, many hardships and really demonstrates to us in his life the purposefulness of hardship. And because hardships are purposeful, and because God is intending to do something, the call from the scriptures are to make certain that we don't waste our hardships. And in the in the particular text in Philippians, of course, we're studying the, the whole subject of joy as it weaves its way through this whole letter. 
And joy is not usually the emotion that first leaps out at us when we're in the midst of a hardship, is it? But God, through his word and through the life of the Apostle Paul, wants us to experience joy unspeakable in the midst of hard, hard times. And we can. In fact, we're expected to. In fact, this is really the normal Christian life. It's not extraordinary. The Apostle Paul's way of living is not extraordinary. It's, it's to be the call on each of our lives. So the subject title today is Don't Waste Your Hardships, How Joy Happens in Hard Times. There is clearly a distinct relationship between understanding the purposeful nature of hardships and our joy in the Lord. So um, if you have your Bibles open, I would invite you to look at verses 12 uh, right through 26. And I want to uh, invite us to stand today as we, as we read God's Word. If you can. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 26. Now I want you to know, brothers, I want you to, I want you to notice how many times joy or rejoice happens. I want you to hang on every word here. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Well, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Did you catch the joy there in the text? 
lots of joy. And maybe you're not aware of what is the hardship in Paul's life. He's in prison or in chains for Christ, he talks about here. Maybe a little background would be helpful. You know, uh, most of us have received bad news from somewhere, from someone we love who's maybe far, further away from us or not right with us. And of course, it always causes us to be quite anxious, especially when they're not with us. And we wonder, what's going on? How are they doing? Are they doing okay? And we, we always, we can't wait for updates and we want to know everything that's going on because we love them and we care about them. The Apostle Paul was far away from the Philippian church, and they loved Paul, and Paul loved them. To get a, a sense of, of, of the situation here, uh, they had known that Paul was imprisoned. Uh, we're not exactly sure how severe the imprisonment was. There's a lot of different uh, theories, uh, whether he was just in house arrest or whether by this time uh, he had been thrown into some serious dungeon or prison. We're not, we're not really con completely convinced, but we do know somewhat about the time frame that the Philippians knew he was in prison, but they hadn't heard from him for about four years. So they hadn't heard whether he was okay, whether he had been uh, beheaded, whether he was, he was not alive anymore. They really hadn't heard. Uh, these are in the days, of course, when letters came by foot and they took a long time to arrive and so um, four years had passed and finally they get a letter from him and it, it's it's so like Paul to uh, they wanted to hear about him they wanted to know how he was doing and the first thing he does and we discussed this last week is he writes to tell them and to encourage them and to assure them of who they are in Christ he wants to make sure you guys know who you are in Christ, and how, how awesome is the Lord. And then in verse 12, he finally gets to, well, now, you know, now I want you to know about me. Okay, I'll tell you about me. I'm, uh, thank you for asking now about my situation. Now, uh, you, you have to keep in mind that Paul was an energetic, traveling evangelist church planter. Nothing could be more um, stifling for him than to be restricted in his movement. So with that in mind, it's quite stunning that he writes the way he does. But when you get to know Paul a little bit, as we will through this text, you really begin to understand why he would. He tells them, look it, I'm all right. Yes, my situation is challenging. Yes, it's uncertain. Yes, it's concerning, but I'm all right. And then he starts to tell them why he's all right. In fact, not only am I all right, I'm rejoicing. I'm filled with joy. Now, you fill in the blank on your hardship this morning. One that you've been through recently, one that maybe you're involved in right now, is the first thing that you would write to people, I'm rejoicing, I'm, I'm full of joy. Well, yes, we, we can. Yes, we should. Yes, it's possible. I'm all right, he says. But what I want, you, I want to tell you, he says, I want to tell you what God is doing through this situation that I find myself in. That's what really interests Paul. And he says here, I want you to know that what's happened to me, which you think is horrible, has really served to advance the gospel and that Christ might be preached. Wow, how exciting this is. 
What a different communication than what we might have expected from someone in prison. Uh, wrongfully, by the way, and justly putting... He's not be there because he's a robber. He's not there because he's some sort of criminal. He, he's not there because he's done something that's, that's illegal. He's there because of his great love for Jesus Christ and the persecution on the early church. So then let's ask the question in terms of circumstances uh, and our joy because we often connect or we regularly connect our circumstances with our joy. Paul does something different here because we have to ask ourselves and we have to settle in our own lives are God's purposes limited to ideal circumstances? I mean, quickly, intellectually, we say, of course not, it's God. Until we find ourselves in a really, really deep weeds hardship, and then we start to ask the question, can God's purposes be served in this? Well, Paul's going to tell us something about that. And since God is able, we believe, he's a sovereign God, is able to, to uh, use hardship to advance his Christ-saving and Christ-exalting purposes, the worst of times in your life can have the best of outcomes. The worst of times in your life can result in the best of outcomes. We're going to look at that. Now let's understand something as well. Paul has had some time to reflect on what God is doing. We live in a time of instantaneous information. As I said to you, they delivered letters on foot. We get information on Facebook. We find out right away when each of our lives is a mess. You need to know about my week. It was horrible. I'm in a terrible situation. We don't even give moments for anything to soak or settle or reflect we're just all over the emotion of our situation. The Apostle Paul, and, and in those days, there was some space to their time. We don't have any space. We don't create any space. It's, it's just immediate, immediate, immediate. We need to create space in our time. Time to think. Time to reflect. Time to notice maybe what God is doing. So that we too could write a letter to our friends like this letter. I want you to know that it's a tough time for me, but I want you to know what God is doing in this time. We need to put space back in our time. We also need to recognize that we have a severe addiction to comfort and convenience in our culture. And as we think about that and the combination of joy and hardships, the truth of the matter is, our joy is entirely, for the most part, connected to our circumstances, our comfort, and our convenience. And I'm going to show you that Paul doesn't live that way, didn't live that way, and urges us not to live that way. Because if we link our joy to our comfort, our convenience, our personal plans, our security... What are we going to do when God's plans and purposes collide with our plans? How are we going to remain joyful when God's purposes are going to take us away from our comfort, our convenience, 
our security, our personal plans. Can we still be a joyful Christian then? Paul's thesis is, yes, I'm, I'm going to show you how. Uh, keep in mind that Paul had dreams. He was, as I said, an energetic evangelist going around planting churches. And his dream, according to the Romans, at the end of the book of Romans was, I dream of going to Spain. I can't wait to go to Spain. I want to go to Spain and tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what? He never got to Spain. God never permitted him to get to Spain. Yet he speaks of joy and rejoicing. He, he knows, even in this letter, he knows that it's possible that his life could be ended. That, that he, he may not get out of prison, he may be executed. He knows that. So his hopes of Spain, the dreams of Spain, have now collided with God's purposes. He's not hanging his head and moping. He's talking and encouraging the church and encouraging our church to rejoice in hardship. Don't waste your hardships. So I want to share three things quickly with you so we can be healthy in hardship. And the first is this. Find your joy in gospel outcomes. Not in circumstances, not in comfort, not in convenience, not in your personal plans, not in your family, not in your security. Find your joy in gospel outcomes. I want you to know the reason that I'm joyful, he says here. This thing has happened to me. It's served to advance the gospel. It's served to advance the gospel. Listen, brothers and sisters, hardships become a very real test of your attachments. They really do. Are you attached to health and wealth and prosperity, your plans, the physical, or Jesus? And hardships will surface and give a clear window, not only to our attachments, but our deficiencies. The Bible teaches us something about hardships over the long haul. And let me just say something to you. That hardships are absolutely 100% connected to God's discipling work in our lives. When you want to understand the definition, the fuller definition of discipleship, I will make you, or, or go, and, go and make disciples. When, when we're talking about the whole idea of discipleship, God's purposes in discipleship include hardships for all of us. I, I can tease that out a little bit for you for a few moments. There's at least three different reasons that hardships occur under the total subject of discipleship that you'll find throughout the scriptures. The one is instructive. God allows hardships to come into our lives to instruct us. First uh, Peter uh, 6 through 7, one, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, um, to teach us to be empathetic with one another. If there's one thing that, that God has taught me through hardship personally is, is to care more, to, to care about my brothers and sisters when they're going through difficult times. It's very, very instructive. And helpful to be in the family of God and to have experienced something so that our hearts are enlarged in empathy for one another. Not only that, it can be corrective in Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. Sometimes it's part of the disciplining process of the Lord. Hardships come into our lives because we have been ignoring God or been straying from Him, wandering away from Him. 
But a third reason that, that hardships can be allowed to come into our lives is an evangelistic purpose. It's the way God intends to reach someone for himself through you in your hardship. And that's particularly what Paul is noting here. He uh, wasn't giving the whole idea that was for his instruction, or certainly wasn't for corrective. He's going to describe that. He's not accepting that. And it, what he's saying here is it's evangelistic. It's to advance the cause of the gospel. And there are two big things for him. The gospel's advancing and Christ is being preached. And he describes what that, that gospel advance is looking like. Look what it says in verse 13. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that everyone else that, and, and, and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Now, the way that uh, it, it's uh, generally described here in his prison is Paul would be chained, and he was chained, uh, if you're taking the house arrest theory, which is highly probable, he was, he was chained in a house under house arrest, chained day and night to a Roman guard. And there would be different shifts, but they would be chained to Paul. And can you imagine they come in, look at the schedule, da-da-da-da-da, who am I chained to today? Oh, no, not that religious fanatic from Tarsus. Seriously, that guy never shuts up about this guy named Jesus. I can't take another, another time of being chained to this guy. Basically, here, this whole rotation, it says, like, I'm here long enough. I've been through the whole palace guard, and they've heard about Jesus Christ. They know that I'm not chained here as a criminal. I tell them I'm chained because of Christ. I'm here so that you, mister, who are attached to the chain, can hear about the living Christ. They're like, oh, no, I can't take this anymore. So the whole palace guard. I mean, how else? The amazing plan of God. How else are all the Roman guards of the prison system in Rome going to hear about Jesus? You think they're going to come to some evangelistic meeting that Paul is having? They're not coming to that. They're chained. The wisdom of God. Paul saw the evangelistic advantage to this and was rejoicing. I'm in chains for Christ. You fill in your your own. Maybe you're not in chains for Christ. Maybe you're hospitalized for Christ. Maybe you're sick for Christ. Maybe you're in a really tough situation at your workplace for Christ. Maybe you're in a really tough situation with your family for Christ. You name your hardship and then label it for Christ. It changes everything. When you see what God is able to do through the most difficult of situations. But not only that. Verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Not only am I boldly speaking to the Roman guards, but everybody's out there in a state where a city that's persecuting Christians, and they become suddenly bold for Christ. Those who were shy and backward and afraid and fearful are now emboldened. There's nothing like injustice brought upon our brothers and sisters to stir up bold hearts. That's how life works. Throughout all of the world, it's in the places of persecution that the the formerly shy and fearful are stepping forward in boldness, representing Christ. He says most of the brothers are encouraged to speak most. 
That's a large number, most. If we sit in this room here, if I could say in this room here, you know what, when we leave this place today, most of the brothers and sisters are going to go out in the street and speak boldly for Jesus Christ. Wow. Would that not be awesome? Pastor Nick, would that not be awesome? You'd be all over that. They would be out there speaking boldly for Christ. People fired at seem to become more fired up for Jesus Christ. That just seems to be the way it works. Fired up with spiritual priorities to stir up spiritual power within us. That's what God does. And so he was excited about that. But then he goes on to say, yeah, it's true though. I, I recognize that there are people who are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm here, put here for the defense of the gospel. I'm not here as a criminal. I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Evidently, there were some people who uh, were jealous over Paul's following in Rome. There were more people coming to Paul's church than coming to their church. And so they used this opportunity while he was in chains to say, hey, you know, that Paul guy, he's, you know, he speaks too, he speaks too aggressively. Um, you know, he's not politically correct, and that's why he got himself in prison. But, you know, if you come to our church and my church now, I don't, I don't you know, I'm careful, careful about what I say, careful not to offend too many people. Uh, that Paul guy, he offends people, and he got his just reward. Now, uh, it, it evidently appears that there were some people who were very, very jealous of Paul. You know, it's, it's always kind of laughable to me when I hear people say, we've got to get back to the days of the early church. That's when it was good and pure and honest and people loved each other and all of that. Are you serious? The early church was a mess of rivalries and jealousies and envies, competition. There's no competition now between churches, yes? Paul, to Paul, preaching Christ mattered more than what people thought of him. He was not in the business of preaching for acclaim or accolades. That's why he's excited. Who cares about these people with false motives? All that matters to me is that Christ is preached. Now, let me just pause for a moment. These individuals were preaching with unhealthy motives, but not preaching a different gospel. There's a difference, yes? If they had been preaching a different gospel, the Apostle Paul would have been all over them. Galatians 1, 7 through 9, he would have said, may they be accursed. He wouldn't have said, look it, don't worry about it. I can take care of myself. The Lord will take care of me. I'm just interested that they're preaching about Jesus. Who cares what they think about Paul? And it doesn't matter what the congregation thinks about Paul. What matters is, do they think the right thing about Jesus? That's all that mattered to Paul. That's all that should matter to us. That Christ is preached. If you get more jazzed about the gospel then your own life and comfort, that's what I take out of this section, you can rejoice when the gospel goes on even if at your apparent expense.
Did the messiness in the church kill Paul's joy? Class, what do you think? No. Don't be afraid. Be bold and courageous. No, it did not. Because Paul's joy was not founded on the healthiness of the church. Paul's joy was not founded in personal security. Paul's joy was not founded in his family. Paul's joy was not founded in his comfort. Paul's joy was not founded in his freedom. Paul's joy was not founded in anything personal at all. Paul's joy was founded in Jesus and Jesus alone. The advance of the gospel and that Jesus Christ was preached. And when your joy is founded on Jesus alone, it can never be taken away from you. Because your personal security, your health, your family, your uh, the healthy church, whatever you have can, can be taken away in an instant because it's all temporary. But Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel is permanent and lasts forever. So for Paul, he had one metric for joy, that the gospel was being advanced and that Jesus Christ was being preached. That changes everything. But there's more to what he says here in terms of preserving his joy or encouraging or strengthening his joy. He said, yes, the end of verse 18, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. But on what basis? On the basis, he says, that I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, will help me to not be ashamed, and will enable me to exalt Christ in my body. That's an amazing statement. The second way or the second facet or aspect of making certain that we don't waste our hardships is to make certain that we call out to God's people for prayer, that we ask for prayer. Ask for prayer that your brother or your sister in hardship or yourself will experience an unusual but necessary abundance of the Spirit. This is what's promised here. In our difficult times, what we need when hardship comes calling, what real believers want, and you need the prayers of God's people to experience is a special supply of the Holy Spirit's power and filling that is available through prayer. Now, I'm, I, I have no explanation to say, yes, here's why that's so and all of that. I'm just telling you that the Scriptures endorsed by the Holy Spirit of God Tell us that prayer makes a difference in our hardships. That when we need a special help from the Spirit of Jesus, when we need confidence to be certain that we will, this, the hardship will result in deliverance, and by the way, this word deliverance is the same word that's used for salvation. The Apostle Paul was, was connecting everything in his life to the gospel. 
And he was never taking for granted, even in his own life, and you can read through other parts of letters, he was never taking his salvation for granted, ever. Even though the Apostle Paul wrote in boldness about our eternal perseverance in Christ, that what Christ has done in our lives will be preserved and he will hold us. The Apostle Paul never, ever took his own heart and soul for granted. That somehow he could hold on to Jesus by grinning and bearing it, by holding on with his own strength. He called on the power of God through the prayers of God's people to make certain that I will be convinced of the deliverance from this, whether in my life or my death, that I will be saved. I am saved, Paul says. I am being saved, Paul says. I will be saved. And I don't take for granted any of the steps along the way, ever. And neither should we. Because hardships are the evil one's ways to try and wrench us away from God. So don't think for one second we can hold on by our own strength. And the key, of course, is to learn to love when our disappointments become cause for Christ's exaltation. And, and the only way to get there is you must be good at joy in small disappointments. Why does the Lord allow just things to come into our lives? Why can't it just be a breeze? It won't be a breeze. The discipling process won't be a breeze. Because God wants to train us in joy in Christ alone. And when we get used to the fact that our plans don't work out or our security is rattled or whatever, our health disappears from us, we must be convinced that we will not be ashamed, we will not be disappointed, but have sufficient courage so that in that difficult time, I will exalt Jesus in my body. I hope you know that it's about our bodies God is most magnified not by what you and I do, but by who we are. Not our body of work, but our body. Our body is very, very important to Jesus. It is the place where he resides. It is the place where his glory is made manifest in this earth. It is the place where his power is demonstrated in this earth. It is the place where we convince each other of the reality of Jesus Christ. I've been in many, many great um, edifices built by the hands of mankind, allegedly to the glory of God. And many of you have been to the same places. I've been to the place that's, that's supposedly the most sacred place on the face of the earth, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in, in Jerusalem. It's Calvary, where our Savior was crucified and buried and rose again. And there there is the edifice, a, a great church building built allegedly to the glory of Christ. And when you visit there, you'll be left feeling emotionally distressed. It doesn't feel sacred. It feels cold and lifeless. 
And the most that happens there is the wrangling between denominations, fighting with one another over the ownership of the property. I've been to the St. Paul's Basilica in Rome, the great building of Michelangelo paintings, allegedly built to the glory of God. Lifeless, hollow, disappointing. The structure was built by the dishonest money taken from fearful peasants through indulgences, not to the glory of God. The glory of God, Paul says, is that I might exalt Jesus in my body whether I am living or whether they take my life. And I pray that I might not be disappointed or ashamed in Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe, first the Jew and then the Gentile. So pray for each other that our body will be a sacred Christ-exalting temple even while under siege. Pray for each other and make certain that you don't keep in secret your hardships, but share them with your brothers and sisters. You need this prayer that your joy might not fly away from you, that Christ may strengthen you. And finally... One of the verses we all know, and we'll wrap this up quickly. For, me, for to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know how joy happens in our lives? When we finally come full faith to the place where our outcomes are only win. No matter what, if I'm a child of the living Christ, whether sickness or in health, whether in poverty or in riches, whether in tough circumstances or wonderful times, it's always a win for us in Christ Jesus. Always. There is no circumstance that, is, that can overpower the living God. There is no situation that can cause him to lose. Hardships, brothers and sisters, will only harm you if Christ is not your prize and joy. But if Christ is your prize and joy, there is nothing that anyone can do to you. There is nothing that anything can, that can be brought to you. There's nothing the evil one can do that will ever be able to steal your joy from you. Not ever. I want you to notice something because many of us, Paul is talking about his dilemma, whether to stay and do fruitful ministry or whether to go and be with the Lord. You know, he was like, do I want to be executed? Would I rather be executed? He's thinking, yeah, I think I would. Now, now most of us live with this whole idea that, that heaven at the end is a, sort of the consolation prize. That, that, that we, we're so in love with this life and we live it up here. We're so excited about it. And, and the thoughts of heaven and being with Jesus, well, that's when I'm old or when I'm on a deathbed or sick and I got nothing else to live for. I can't do anything. Then, then that'll be a great, great time to go to heaven. That's not what Paul presents here. He, he's not presenting, well, I'm in prison 
it, it's horrible here, it's a hardship here, and so I'd rather die and be with Jesus. That's not what he presents at all. His dilemma is not about being in prison or in heaven. His dilemma is about being in fruitful ministry or heaven. That's an entirely different reality. To a traveling energetic evangelist, the thoughts of being out of prison and getting to Spain, he's all over that. That's what excites him. That's what jazzes him. But he can honestly say, I would trade that in a millisecond to be with Jesus right now for all eternity. That's a whole different way of living. That's why his joy couldn't be stolen. Because he wasn't about his projects. He wasn't about his purposes. He wasn't about his plans. He wasn't about anything that this earth has to offer. He was about Jesus. And if Jesus wanted him to be here, he's all over that. But if Jesus wanted him to be in heaven, he was really all over that. That's a whole different way to live. That's the Apostle Paul's way to live. It's not just him. It's for us. It's a little bit sobering that we have banked everything on believing that death is better and then do everything we can do to prevent it. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't love life here and that we shouldn't fight for life. I'm not saying that. Paul's not saying that. The scriptures aren't saying that. The truth of the matter is, no matter what, if we find Jesus our prize and joy there is nothing that can happen to us to steal our joy. Paul was looking forward to being with Jesus. He loved him so much. The simple truth is maybe we aren't rejoicing about there because we really aren't enjoying Christ here. Because if you're really enjoying Christ here and crazy in love with him, you can't wait to get there. That's all Paul's saying. Saying, I can't wait to be freed from evil. I can't wait to finally really be like Jesus. I can't wait to finally have an unobstructed relationship with Christ. I can't wait. So if these chains bring me death, great. Great. When Christ is the prize, a more perfect existence with him is immensely more appealing every single time. John, the apostle, says in his final writings, I know of a place, a situation, where there's no more grief, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. Anybody interested? Paul says, I'm interested, but I want to go one step further. I know of that place, but here's why I'm excited about it, because Jesus is there, and I want to be with Jesus. So circumstances, whether good or challenging, simply have no bearing on your joy when your joy is anchored to the advancement of the gospel and the progress toward knowing Christ. Beloved. When Jesus is your prize and joy, there is no hardship that can steal away your joy in Christ. Not one. Lord, 
how we thank you for this encouragement from your word. And I pray, oh God, that you would teach us, teach us to love you. Teach us to know what it is to finally, finally arrive at the place where Jesus is our joy rather than our circumstances, our dreams, our plans. Father, I pray that your word would dip deeply into the places in our heart that are not given over to Jesus. Our attachments, our deficiencies, that we might truly experience what it is to have Jesus as our joy so we don't waste any more hardships. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. So how are we going to love Jesus the same way the Apostle Paul loved him? It's not something you just sort of make a decision today to say, I'm just going to love Jesus more, and you grin and bear it, and some sort of decision of the will. It has to go far deeper than that. It's a deepness in the heart. And I, I think there's no better way than to, to come to terms all over again in a fresh way with our salvation. There's a tremendous verse that so strengthens and encourages my soul. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. 2 Corinthians 5.19. It's a powerful, emotional, life-transforming verse as you think about it more and more, that this amazing Christ forgave me I mean, how do I love him? I, I think all over again that he's willing to forgive me. And, and I think about, well, what's the cost? How much do I have to pay for that, Jesus? Nothing. It's free. It's a free gift from, from me. I'm the one who died for you. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself by not counting men's sins against them. How do I love Jesus? I love him for his forgiveness. I love him because he's the one who died for me. I allow that to nurture my soul over and over again, particularly in hard times. How do I love you, Jesus? I love you because you forgave me. I love you because you paid for my sins. And our love grows and grows and grows. It has nowhere else to go but to grow. And then... We come to the place where Jesus is our prize and joy. And then no matter what hardship comes our way, it can't steal our joy. It can't steal our salvation. It can't steal our love for Jesus. And it can't steal his love for us. That's what matters. Brothers and sisters, that's what matters is that Jesus loves us and we love him. And we have this eternal promise. So for us, to live is Christ. To die is gain. We're the win-win people. Father, thank you for your love for us, your truth. May we live victorious lives in hardship, lives of joy, not 
wasting our hardship, but exalting you in our bodies regardless, Lord. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.